The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello. With me today is Randy Olson. Randy Olson is a filmmaker and a faculty member in marine biology at the University of Southern California. He has a new book out. It's titled... Don't be such a scientist talking substance in the age of style. Don't be such a scientist talking substance in the age of style, and it's by Island Press. Randy is an excellent scientist and not a bad marine biologist. Randy don't talk like one though. He cuts through the pontifications and dogmatic pronouncements like a hair dryer through butter, like a leaf blower of fresh air through a house of cards. For example, Randy published an editorial in the L.A. Times Sunday edition. And instead of putting the topic of the article into the title, as a good scientist should, he had the nerve and the lack of discipline to title it Slow Motion Disaster Below the Waves. Randy, welcome to the show. And tell us a bit about the uh, slow motion disaster below the waves and hopscotching baselines. <laughs> well, let's see. Good morning. Uh, great to be here. And for starters, um I think the editors rewrote the title and put that. They made that title up, uh, which oh. was actually a, a really great thing that happened with that um, that op-ed. It was um, that was actually seven years ago now, in the fall of 2002, and it was a, a topic that uh, a scientist friend of mine had been telling me about. Um, it's a term that was coined in 1995, and the term is shifting baselines. And Jeremy Jackson is a marine biologist at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Um, and I had just paired up to begin a whole project communicating ocean conservation, and he kept mentioning that term to me over and over again, shifting baselines. Don't you think this relates to everybody's lives these days? And what the term refers to is the idea of losing track of reference points from the past. A baseline is a reference point from the past, and when we start to allow these reference points to be redefined, to shift around, the next thing you know you're walking out into nature and looking around and thinking what you're looking at is, is natural and pristine, and you just don't even know how things used to be. Um, it's a huge problem, and Daniel Pauly, fisheries biologist at the University of British Columbia, coined the term in 1995 for the fisheries world, but thanks to Jeremy and many other people, it's been slowly broadened out well beyond just the world of, of fisheries biology to all of conservation and really even to lots of other fields and disciplines. And so in the fall of 2002, uh, I wrote this op-ed that, that kind of laid it out there and said, here's a new term. Um, that everybody should give some thought to. And what was so great was the editors um, at the Los Angeles Times connected with the topic so thoroughly that they rewrote about a quarter of the editorial, including the title, and they put in their own shifting baselines, personal stories, um, 
coined the term shifting waistlines to refer to the idea of losing track of your own physique. Um, yeah, that was that was brilliant in there. You, you, exactly. That that, you know, if your ideal you know, weight used to be 150 pounds, I'm quoting from your editorial now, and now it's 160 pounds, your baseline as well as your waistline has shifted. Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can relate to that all too well. Everything you're pointing out in it that was good, it was not stuff that I wrote. So that's, I don't know what that says about me, but anyhow, it was, you know, that's how important the term was, that they all just caught fire and did that. And then as soon as it was published, it was picked up and reprinted in tons of magazines and newspapers and in three different college textbooks. And, and today, um, in the fall of 2002, if you search the term shifting baselines, there was only one little editorial in a, in a newsletter that I found that put it in an ecological context. Um, today, if you search shifting baselines, you'll find hundreds of, of pages and articles and things like that. In fact, there's an article in, this, in September's Bioscience um, magazine that is all about shifting baselines in conservation context. So that was the beginning of a whole big movement. It's such an important concept. Um, you know, in the mid-'80s, I was bringing people down to the ocean in, in, North, in Massachusetts, and uh, I was having them put the secchi dish into the water and see how clear the water was and measured dissolved oxygen, salinity, and, and uh, yeah. And, and you know, the, the language I used, because they didn't see this as science, that we weren't scientists who were doing it, I said that we were trying to measure the heartbeat of the harbor, of the water, and the purpose was to know what normal was so that if the heartbeat accelerated, uh, or like if our, we know what our body temperature is supposed to be, so if we don't, you know, so then we know when we have a fever and stuff. And I guess that's kind of the, the thing about shifting baselines is, tell us more about that. Well, that, that's a perfect analogy. You're right. That's 98.6. That's their baseline for temperature. And, yeah, imagine if we allow that to shift around, then how are you ever going to know if you've got a fever? If, if suddenly somebody starts redefining the baseline for temperature as 101, then you'd think that your fever is perfectly normal when it's not. Um, that's, that's great. I've never even heard but, that but, example. But then you have... Um, you have the things shifting over time. So you, you write about how that in the uh, number of salmon in the Pacific Northwest Columbia River today is twice what it was in 1930. And that sounds great if 1930 is your baseline. That's right. Exactly. But the, the fact is, if you look back in the 1800s, you find that the real baseline is way up there ten times what, what they were in the 1930s. Um, and that's exactly what you run into. And a lot of what the problem arises from is just the natural tendency to just get consumed by the here and the now. You know, that's everybody, we're so busy in our daily lives, and I think it's more important today than ever before because we've got so much information glutting our lives. And as a result, you find people saying, look, if it doesn't have to do with the here and the now, I don't want to hear about it. And you have to broaden your perspectives beyond that. You've got to look globally, and you've got to be able to look back in time. And it just is kind of counterintuitive to do that. It's not easy. You need people coming along and, and reminding you, you know, have you looked at the baselines? Are you sure you're dealing with the real unshifted baseline, and this happens over and over again in the fisheries world in particular, where you get um, fi fishing industries that are trying to claim that they've only had a small impact on the fish stocks, but in fact the historians come along and say, wait a second, you know, once upon, these, once upon a time the stocks were way up there. Um, so, yeah. It, it must be really challenging because many of us aren't fishermen or fisheries biologists, and so we just go to the ocean and say, oh, looks good. That's the truth, and in fact... You know, part of the reason I connected with it so much with Jeremy when he first began saying it to me is that I'd been through my own little experience like that when I was, um, I used to be a professor at the University of New Hampshire in the uh, biology department, and in the uh, early 90s, I took a group of graduate students to the north coast of Jamaica to go diving on coral reefs, 
and they'd never been diving on a coral reef. And we went and did our first dive and went down, and they saw a few little pieces of coral and a few colorful fish, and we got out of the water, and they were just on fire saying, coral reefs are incredible, this is amazing. And I sat there depressed saying, you know, I wish you guys had been here in 1980 when I went diving on these reefs before the hurricanes hit them in the, the uh, 80s and a whole bunch of other things that happened. You know, that never yeah, the bleaching happened. and so forth. Yeah, overfished and things like that. Um, and they were leaping with joy, and you were practically crying on the rocks. That's exactly right, and that's the difference. You know, they were dealing with a shifted baseline. They were forming their baseline right there, thinking that was the natural, pristine state of the coral reef, and I was dealing with a different baseline, and you get that all the time. Well, if you want people to change their behaviors, it's hard because they are celebrating, you know, the, the one jellyfish that they see swimming in the water. That's right, and, and you kind of hate to ruin their their party, you know, and that's what it turns into. You feel like the grumpy old man saying, yeah, I know you you love what you're seeing, but i got to remind you that there was something else here once upon a time. And you, you hear the same stories here on the California coast from some of the older veteran divers that were diving in kelp forests in the 1950s and 60s here on the coast that used to be packed full of big fish. And today everybody loves diving in the kelp forest, but the veterans will tell you it's just not the same experience. One of the guys told me that he finds it to be lonely going diving today because, you know, all of his old friends, the fish, <laughs> aren't any, around anymore. The place is just empty. And yet we also see hope in, in the return of some animals and, and some signs. Or uh, Yeah, but, not. you know, that's, that's where the shifting baseline syndrome has to be constantly kept close at hand because everybody wants to feel hope. Everybody wants to say, yay, we're winning, we're succeeding. And that's great if it's really true, but it's so easy to fall victim to these things where you, just as you said, you see a doubling of the salmon. You think, wow, look at how abundant they are today. And then you just realize, well, not what it used to be, but I know that, that goes on and on, that dilemma. The, the goal of this program, of this radio show, is to help people find things that they can do to make a difference for the environment. And so it, it's really heartwarming when they see evidence that their little steps are making a difference. Absolutely. Um, well, and in fact, you know, that kind of leads into what I'm in the thick of right now here on the California coast, which is um, they're implementing what are called marine protected areas, MPAs. And this is a 10-year project that the, the state of California has undertaken. And right now they're finally creating these this network of areas along the coastline where they're stopping exploitation. They're ending the fishing and blocking them off to certain access. And it's a very controversial project um, program because fishermen in particular don't like to be told they can't fish in their favorite places. But the fact is, around the world, this is becoming one of the, the simplest and most successful strategies in trying to protect the oceans is creating these marine protected areas, and they're called MPAs. And so we've created this new campaign here titled MPAs Work, very simple. And we're at a point now, after about 10 years of over 50 nations creating MPAs, that the science community is willing to pretty much say this. You know, they're not perfect, but they definitely do work. And that's been one of the long-term problems we've had with, with ocean conservation. Uh, when we started our Shifting Baselines project seven years ago, people said, we know there's problems out there, but we're tired of hearing about the problems. Tell us what the solutions are. What can we support? And we didn't have much of an answer to, uh, seven years ago, but now it's really clear this year that I think we can finally start to say this. MPAs work. Get out there and support MPAs as a means of, of protecting the oceans, and it's working here on the California coast. Well, there have been some shifting practices. It used to be that the government guy would come around and look for your fishing license and give you a hard time, and <laughs> now it looks like these MPAs are involving citizens. Are there, are there ways citizens are involved in the MPAs? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, and and it, it's exactly what's happening here in California right now. And unfortunately, um, the citizens aren't particularly aware. And the, the ocean conservation world, in a nutshell, has done a very poor job of communicating to the general public of California that this is an important issue. And as a result, the, the environmental side has not done a good job of turning out people, but we're kind of scrambling now in the last couple months. Um, but they hold these public meetings here almost like town halls, and they always have a couple hours that are uh, open for public comment. And we're starting to turn out some large crowds there that are supportive. Um, it's just that people need to be told this is what you can do to actually make a difference. And I think a lot of the public just kind of get to the point where they think, I, you know, I don't really matter. But uh, they do at these meetings. And the last one we had in July, um, we turned out about 200 supporters all dressed, dressed in blue T-shirts that say MPAs work and the message is coming across. That's great because... So often you go to hearings and think you're not heard. That's right, exactly. Yeah, no, it, it matters. We're going to take a break and be back with Randy Olson after this break. Where can you discuss environmental, ethical, and economic issues with the leading thinkers on these topics? Join host Shane Snipes for One Greener Radio. This program will spotlight key areas such as social impact and environmental ideas, as well as social entrepreneurship. Come on board for lively and engaging discussions with Shane and his experts. One Greener Radio promises to keep you thinking and brainstorming for more. One Greener Radio is broadcast live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501 501- C3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. So many key world issues today relate to energy and environment. We are living in a time where world events set us up for a major transformation of our society. Enter Dr. Bernie Balkan. Dr. Balkan is Commissioner for Energy and Transport for the Sustainable Development Commission in the UK. Whether it's the financial crisis, China's transformation, the emergence of India, or Obama's ascension, put yourself on the pulse of today's changes. Listen for Environment on the Edge with Dr. Bernie Balkan, Tuesdays at 10 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. 
Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. My guest today is marine biologist and filmmaker Randy Olson. And we've been talking about uh, marine protected areas and how citizens are involved in legitimating the work of uh, marine protected areas. Randy, is there a website that people can go to to learn more about uh, what you're telling us? Oh, yeah. Um, Our website is mpaswork.org, mpaswork.org. And that's the theme of the whole campaign, Uh, the idea that MPAs, we're at a point now where we can say that they work. That's Uh, great. They don't work perfectly, but they work well enough that they are definitely a viable approach to dealing with these giant issues of how we're going to keep the oceans alive and protected. Well, it's going to be an ongoing work in progress, especially with your shifting baselines. That's it. That's right, exactly. Um, and, in fact, uh, the mpaswork.org website um, is also a work in progress. So um, next Monday, October 5th, is when we're going to be putting up the revised version that is really fun and, as you had um, mentioned earlier, the, the um, there's three characters on there you get to click on, and all kinds of little gadgets and things. So um, that's all part of the outreach. And then we have a celebrity public service announcement that we'll be releasing also that day, and all of the whole campaign to try and draw attention to this, and mostly to get people to come turn out at these meetings and to send in letters and all the kind of mass support that's needed. Um, that's what you got to do. And is there a place to go to learn more about shifting baselines? Well, yeah, our, our website, shiftingbaselines.org, is something we've been running for seven years now, and there's a, a ton of materials on there. It's, it's all, in a lot of ways, it's just one big promotional campaign built around that one term, shifting baselines. We felt early on that this is such an important concept, and it's so complex, and it's not necessarily something that comes automatically to a lot of people that it was worth putting huge amount of promotional effort behind, and that's what we've done, and I think it's been uh, fairly gratifying. And you can see on our website we've hit it from all different angles. We've done several, um, a whole bunch of short films and videos and TV commercials and things like that, and um, you know, I've done a project with the, the surf community, with the Surfrider Foundation called Shifting Baselines in the Surf. It's probably one of our most, our most popular productions that's uh, uh, on there, and it's a five-minute flash video that is, is still used in lots of group meetings, things like that. And it puts the term shifting baselines into the context of the surf community, why that's important to surfers, that they lose track of their favorite surf breaks and degraded environments. And it happens a lot with surfing. You go to places and there's no waves, and you think, well, there never were waves. And then you find out photos from 30, 40 years ago, and you realize that somebody went in and built breakwaters and things like that that screwed up all the surf. And that's the shifting of the baselines. Yeah, yeah, we need to get that out. Yeah. I want to move the conversation to your, new, to your film, Sizzle. Yep. And how it's not your typical documentary. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the you know. Tell Definitely us. not typical, that's for sure. <laughs> um, it's called Sizzle, a global warming comedy. And for starters, we are having the New York City premiere of the movie 
on Friday night, October 23rd, 2009, as the closing night film of the Imagine Science Film Festival. It's going to be held in the beautiful Tishman Auditorium at the New School in Manhattan, and going to be a big bang-up night for the cast members are going to be there for it. And it's a crazy movie. It is, um, it's really the same message as the Al Gore movie, An Inconvenient Truth. It's just a very different voice. I'll say it's a little different than the Al Gore movie. <laughs> it definitely is. Um, and the, the premise of the movie is it's about a scientist-turned-filmmaker who wants to make a documentary about uh, global warming. The, the, and, of course, the, the scientist-turned-filmmaker is me in the movie. And I have seen the Al Gore movie, thought it was great, but I wondered as I watched it, where are all the scientists? Why didn't he have scientists in his movie? So I set out to make my own documentary, packed full of scientists, and nobody will support me. So I finally team up with these two flaky um, and flamboyant producers who have their own vision. They have the money for the movie, but they want their, the movie to be packed full of celebrities. Right. Um, and that's the Hollywood perspective. And so we set out sort of on separate uh, parallel storylines where I'm interviewing scientists. They're, they're trying to track down celebrities to host our documentary. And they give me a rather incompetent crew um, which includes a cameraman who's a global warming skeptic. And yeah, so that's great. That's when it merges into, it, it's a strange movie because it, it merges three different genres. Um, it's a documentary, it's a mockumentary, and it's a reality piece. So we actually ended up interviewing a dozen experts in the movie, and in all of these interviews, in real life, our cameraman ended up interrupting the interview to argue with the, the scientists. Um, if it was a climate scientist, he argued against them, and if it was a skeptic, he gave them high fives and said that they were on the right track, and we ended up getting in arguments, and the whole movie is a bizarre amalgamation of all those sorts of things. Uh, I think it's pretty funny. Audiences certainly laugh a lot, and that eventually works its way to a very deep and meaningful conclusion as we end up going to New Orleans for the two-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and seeing the truth of what happens with major climate events. And it's the movie has certainly ruffled, ruffled plenty of feathers. A lot of the science community did not like it. Uh, it's not their kind of movie. It's not packed full of statistics and information and all the kind of stuff that they thrive on. But the broader audiences thoroughly enjoy it, and some of the broader publications like Variety Magazine and Cinema Source and a number of other film places have given it rave reviews. So it works well with the big audience, and our screening in New York is going to be a lot of fun. Randy, I see on the website at uh, sizzlethemovie.com that it looks like a polar bear is being more than interviewed to you. <laughs> That's part of a little dream sequence that happens in the movie where polar bear seeks his revenge on me. Um, <laughs> yeah, as I said, it's a crazy movie. It goes it's all. If you want to see polar bears, this is a better film to see than the Al Gore one for the polar bear depictions because <laughs> Al Gore had to had a dog stand in as an animated polar bear, which was most upsetting for me to see a polar bear that couldn't swim being portrayed in Al's movie. When polar bear is the Latin, the scientific name is marine, you know, Ursa marinus, you know, maritime bear. And, and uh, so um, now I'm, this is not behaving like a maritime bear in the silly part of it, but at least the serious part, you've got the bear underwater, so that's good to see. So. Exactly. Well, this has been, you know, really an, it's been, I think scientists have been slow to catch on about, or not just scientists, but everybody's been slow to catch on about how do you convey complex information. So we've gone from this shift from everybody used to pull up the, the chairs to see Walter Conkright and, and now Peter Jennings, except that everyone is off watching John Stewart. Um, 
So there seems to be, you seem to be onto something here about uh, the use of humor and mockumentaries to actually successfully, I mean, apparently more people watch Stuart than, than the real news, and yet they're not any less intelligent than we were back before there was these programs. Yeah, and my, my feeling is it's, it's not about educating the masses. You know, it's not about getting the information to them. It's not about giving them the facts so they can make up their my own minds. Um, it's about providing the, the leadership that they're willing to follow because um, I don't want somebody to give me the facts about some disease outbreak and let me make up my own mind whether or not I, I should evacuate some area or something. I just want to know what is the trustworthy worthy voice for me to listen to that is going to give me the most reliable information about the, um, a disease outbreak or any sort of crisis like that. And that's my feeling about issues like global warming. Um, we need to create bo- voices that the public will listen to and trust, and The Daily Show is the perfect example. You know, John Stewart tomorrow started saying something was a major crisis, and an awful lot of this country would listen really closely because people... Uh, it, it, I mentioned in my book the um, article last year in the New York Times that, that, about John Stewart, and they posed the question, is this the most trusted man in television? And they were not joking. That's, that's very, very important. It, it's a comedy show, but they've managed to create a voice that is very likable and trustworthy, and I would like the science world to have a similar sort of voice that has that sort of popular following. It doesn't have to be done through comedy, but it does have to be done through a number of of kind of standard constraints in terms of how you get the broad audience interested in what you have to say. And unfortunately, the, the science community in general is not particularly good at a lot of those things. Well, what's really interesting is that both you and Sizzle and, and John Stewart are talking up to the audience. You have to be smart enough to know what's funny about the joke. In order to be in on the joke, you have to be up on your current events. That's so it's, true. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the exact turnaround from going to school and having the teacher, this is what you're supposed to learn. Here are the names of the capitals. Instead, they start butchering the names of the capitals, and only those of us who know the names know that to laugh about it. Or the, the John Stewart piece about the windmills in Nantucket Sound. They had someone going down to the beach and saying, clear the beach, the ascetic is attacking. And they had Jaws music as, as the uh, toy uh, windmill came through the water and stuff. And, and so all of this... Is not conveying information. It, it's it's speaking up to people about you know. In order to see the humor in this, you've got to be, you know. So it's a, it's a, actually it's instead That's of very dumbing you down. Know, let me, let like me tell you an example right out of the movie. Um, what's been so fascinating with the movie has been not just making the movie, but the journey since completing it. And in fact, the first appendix in my book is called the Sizzle Frazzle, and it's all about how the science bloggers all blew up in anger and rage at the movie. Um, and early on, we had a couple of test screenings of the film in Hollywood where we invited about 40 or 50 friends of ours. And in general, everybody really enjoyed it and rolled with it and had a lot of fun with it. But there was one analytical science type of person at one of those test screenings who said, um, I, I just found the movie confusing. I couldn't figure out, you know, is this person an actor? Is he reality? Or, you know, are you playing with me? And would you consider the possibility of in the lower corner of the screen just putting a little indicator that would tell us now we're in documentary mode, now we're in mockumentary, now we're in reality, so that we know that these are actors. And the whole audience just laughed at this guy, yeah. and we shook our heads. And yeah. Said, you know, you don't get it. And He doesn't get it. That's too bad. But. Yeah, exactly. Too bad. You're <laughs> left out. Um, and, and you're right. It, it does assume a certain amount of sophistication, and it's not literal intellectual sophistication on, on the behalf of the audience, but instead what it is is intuitive sophistication, and that's what I believe. You know, I talk a lot in my book about the difference between the 
the, the head versus the gut. And, you know, the, the broad audience is not that great with the head, but they tend to be really good at the gut level. Thank you, Randy. We'll be back with Randy Olson after this break, and David Wilmot, most champions, will be joining us. Great. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501 501- C3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Have questions about wind power? Listen for the TLG Wind Power Hour with Terry from TLG Wind Power Products. He'll cover the ins and outs of wind energy with you. Whether you're a do-it-yourselfer or want a ready-made product, let Terry give you the know-how and understanding of making wind energy work for you. Terry will share decades of hands-on experience so that you don't have to learn about wind power the hard way. The TLG Wind Power Hour, live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. listening to the green talk network help to spread the green by involving your family and friends you're doing your part and now help them think green spread the green the green talk network you're listening to moyer's environmental dialogues to participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, my guest is marine biologist and filmmaker Randy Olson, and we're talking about his film Sizzle. Uh, this is a movie that goes where documentaries dare not, into the riotous realms of mockumentary 
and using humor very successfully to uh, convey very complex information. Randy, tell us more. Well, you know, we, we left off talking about the, the frustration at times of, of dealing with the overly analytical types and the, the heavily academic types and right. the fact that they just don't get it sometimes in broad communication the way you need to simplify things. And I just want to toss in one really simple little example of this that it just, again, leaves you kind of dumbfounded. Um, we, we created this campaign the past couple months. It's titled MPA's Work, and that came from, I talked with a few of my friends working on this stuff with marine protected areas, and one of them in a long conversation, she kept saying, you know, the thing that's really sad is that the public just doesn't, isn't hearing the message now, that nowadays we have enough data to show that these MPAs, they actually do work. And it, as she said this over and over again, I finally just realized what a great and powerful, simple little slogan that MPAs work. I brought that back to our whole group, and everybody said, bingo, that's it. We put it on T-shirts. Now it's all over the place. It's working perfectly. But then just a couple weeks ago, um, I got this very nice email from a scientist who will go unnamed, <clears throat> who's in a, another state, who says he's been following our MPA's work project and thinks it's wonderful and really, really great, and he works with MPAs, and this is so good that somebody's finally doing this. He said, but he had just one tiny little request. He said, would you consider modifying your slogan of MPA's work to say MPA's with management work? And, you know, that doesn't fit on a T-shirt. It sure um, doesn't. And it kind of doesn't roll off the tongue the way that MPA's work does. And I just don't even know sometimes how to explain to people like that. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate your sentiments, but there's a difference between trying to communicate to the general public and get this thing across versus standing up to your academic audience. And that's where the art of communication comes into play. But it's just endlessly frustrating as the poor old scientists, you know, just bog these things down at times with too much detail. Yes, Yes, well, you certainly are an artist of the mode of communications. And uh, with me is uh, David Wilmot from Ocean Champions. And, and David, um, you've known Randy for quite a while, and, and you've also worked with Jeremy Jackson, um, who uh, started this uh, base, uh, shifting baselines with uh, Dan Pauly as well. Um, so, uh, Dave, tell us about some of the parallels you see in the, the work of... Uh, Randy and, and those scientists I mentioned, and Ocean Champions. I have had the good fortune of, of knowing and working with Randy for, for quite some time, and I have to say Randy has helped me as a recovering scientist try to do a better <laughs> job communicating, and, and not just communicating the types of ideas that we're talking about here, but if we think about this in terms of policy change, this isn't just limited to academic scientists. A lot of people who do policy work, we like to call them policy wonks, suffer some of the same limitations. So I can say that we have tried to incorporate Randy's view and his, his very good advice, which he lays out, for example, in his new book, on how to specifically communicate better, how to take this information, not just what to do with it, but how to do it. And I remember one of the smartest political advisors I've ever known in Washington, D.C., when we first had the idea for Ocean Champions, he said to me, start where they are, not where you are. He said, remember, most of us took our last science class in the 10th grade in high school for a reason. We don't want a science lesson. And that has always stuck with me, but that by itself isn't enough. Randy started helping us learn and understand how to go from that and still be successful because ultimately we want to take these ideas and implement them. We just don't want to bore people to the point they want to throw us out of the office. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, 
I, I, I learned that, David, when you introduced me to uh, Senator Brian Baird and his use of lethal overheating. Oh, con- yes, Congressman. Congressman, Baird, yeah. Very good. very good. Instead of saying global warming and um, we're talking about the, the atmosphere or the oceans, that's right. Lethal overheating. Oh, nice. Very good. <laughs> But global warming sounds like, you know, put a quilt blanket out or something. And climate change sounds like weather change, you know, and what's unusual about that? You know, but once you start talking, you know, toxic tides and lethal overheating and fatal freezing and and, uh, the the slow motion disaster below the waves, you know. I mean, what it really comes down to is if you want to be successful, you're just trying to decide what that takes. Um, I think Randy and I have both encountered an awful lot of scientists who are, and environmentalists who are very uncomfortable with marketing. They somehow think of marketing as a dirty word. Well, you can imagine when we wanted to found Ocean Champions how many scientists and environmentalists were uncomfortable with a political organization where we actually going to raise the money that would help pro-ocean candidates get elected. Um, but these are really just tools to have the success that you want. And for me, it, it's the only way to play the game is by the rules that are there. Marketing is fundamentally important to properly communicate. Political involvement on the electoral level is fundamentally important to be able to have success in the policy arena in a democracy. Those and, are the know, rules um, of the game. A minute ago, I mentioned the idea of the art of communication, and similarly, you can talk about the art of politics. And those are just two very subjective fields or disciplines that that involve this human element, and that's what terrifies analytical scientific types. Um, You know, they have a hard time a lot of times with all the subjectivity of of human behavior. But that's, that's really the parallel that Dave and I have kind of converged on, is that we're dealing with similar sorts of realms, and all the chaos that comes with dealing with something that is a large portion of it is kind of art, which means that there aren't hard, fast rules in how to do it. You kind of have to make it up as you go along, and I'm sure that's a lot of what Dave's whole life consists of in dealing with politicians. Is that not the case, Dave? That, that is exactly right, and, and uh, Randy mentioned the, the head and the gut a little earlier, and you can think about it in terms of rational or emotional, and it, they're really not separate. I encounter an awful lot of people who are much more intuitive. They go much more with their emotional sense. Not that they're not smart people, and it's not that they cannot make a rational decision, but their instincts have, in most cases, gotten them to where they are. That's something that's very foreign for most people who are analytical and and who are scientists. It was a very difficult transition for me to try to move into that world. But That's the world I live in. Politicians are great emotionally and intuitively. Uh, again, not that they can't think, um, but that's not where they generally make their decisions. turns out that an awful lot of people who think they're making rational decisions are ultimately more emotional and intuitive than they realize, and that can be a very good thing, depending on the type of decision we're talking about. Well, also you find that scientists and policy experts they deconstruct things so much and they develop their own words for things that it begins to be disconnected from reality. And, and it can begin to be, you know, this doublespeak we hear about where they don't say what really is. They, they say it in their own words. And then it's impossible for people outside the field to know what they're talking about or whether it's relevant. Yes. 
Uh, yes, but I mean, Randy can speak to it. It's more than just, it really is about building relationships. And, and to me, when I think about mm. the storytelling that, that Randy describes in his book, you're, you're really using the storytelling to have a true connection. And that's often the beginning or involvement in a relationship. I think that to be successful in the public policy arena, to make change, whether you're going to establish MPAs or we're going to pass a harmful algal bloom bill, it is about relationships. It's about the trust. You were mentioning John Stewart. Those things are real. So, again, it's just tools to help create that trust, that bond that ultimately will lead you to success. But it's about relationships and trust at the end of the day for people to have a true connection with whoever they are looking to to lead with the ideas or with the actions. And the, and the variable that comes into play there with, as he's saying, relationships um, is time. And that's the really hard part. And, you know, people talk about the term that's used, they call somebody the consummate politician, meaning that, you know, this is the person who really knows how to work the whole system. Um, and that's kind of one of the sad downsides of term limits on politicians they always talk about. You know, you don't want term, list, term limits on certain politicians because you need to have these veterans that have been in the system, in the Senate for years and years, and they know how to work it because there they becomes, uh, you know, an increasing return on effort when they become that knowledgeable and that savvy with the whole thing. And, and I think I'm sure this is what Dave is getting to now. He's been doing his project for six or seven years. I've also been doing shifting baselines for six or seven years. And I'm finding myself now at a point where I've got the resources lined up and the relationships all built. And we just did a short video with Dave in the past couple months where it was very easy. Um, it would have been much more difficult five or six years ago for me to just jump in and do the thing. I didn't quite know as well back then what I was doing. But now, after six or seven years of investment, we're at the point where I'm fairly fluent in this language of, of filmmaking. Jump in and make these things right off the top. Yes, yes. We'll be back with uh, Dave Wilmont and Randy Olson after this break. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization 
organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Experience higher love, an archangelic journey into ascended joy and authentic living. Your hosts, Sri Ram Ka and Kira Ra, will assist you to open your heart, expand your love, and be ever-present with true joy. Your journey with Sri and Kira begins right here on the 7th Wave Network with Higher Love, Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking today with marine biologist and filmmaker Randy Olson. And David Wilmot of Ocean Champions has joined us. And Dave, uh, today is September 30th. It's a Wednesday, and it seems to be particularly active on Capitol Hill. What's going on? Well, uh, on the ocean front, we have good news. We have, over the past many weeks, uh, been giving updates on the issue of harmful algal blooms, these outbreaks of algae in the ocean that can be toxic, and even when not toxic, can be extremely harmful. We've been making tremendous project, uh, progress on the issue. We passed it through committee in the Senate. Well, today, uh, Chairman Baird brought it before his subcommittee in the House Science and Technology Committee, and it passed unanimously. So the next step for this will be the full committee and then the floor of the House, and, of course, it's getting ready to hopefully go to the floor of the Senate. So the good news is, on all the technical side, we're, we're crossing the T's and dotting the I's, and some very important things are happening. But more importantly, what this is really showing us is that what we have been working toward and building toward, just as Randy was saying at the end of the last segment, after a number of years, he's now able to move quickly and efficiently to put together films that can connect with people to share the message and have the impact that he's trying for we're in a position where we have built relationships with key leaders in Congress. They're in a position to be able to act on behalf of the oceans. They're taking those actions, and we're beginning to see the results. And let's remember, in our democracy, they have the ability to change public policy, not all of us who are scurrying around trying to influence that policy. Ultimately, it's in their hands. So we have to have these close relationships to be able to help those change happen. That's what's happening here with Chairman Baird and then, of course, Chairman Gordon of the full committee has assured us that he'll be moving this through, it looks like, potentially within the next week. He'll pass it through his full committee. That's very exciting. It really ties back to what Randy Olson was saying about time and, as you're saying, about the relationships where, you know, the Ocean Champions started in the fall of 2003 and, and some of those relationships that you were building in 2004 are coming to fruition in this bill. Isn't that right? 
That is, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, really, I can remember going into members of Congress' office so many times and telling them what we wanted and what they should do. And I have to tell you, it, the first meeting, for example, with Chairman Baird uh, was going in and talking to him about what he wanted. He knew that we were very high on this bill with HABs. There was great potential there, important issue, could do good things for the oceans. He knew that's where we were. We went in and asked him what he wanted. I have to believe that that helped him elevate this issue. He ended up taking it on. He turned to us and said, I'm going to be the champion on this issue. That's what I'm going to do, and he's, he's doing it. But it wasn't because we twisted his arm and told him what he should do. I'd like to believe that we went in and said, What's important to you, and what can we do to help? And then we had the opportunity to have the conversation we really wanted to have about this issue. This is a, a change from the old paradigm of, well, where are the heroes, and we'll go line up behind the heroes. But instead, you know, you went and spoke to the congressman, and as a result of that meeting, he could step up as the hero for this. Well, and, and you know, funny you should say all that because that weaves right back into what yeah. the book is about, basically, is the same thing as trying to urge the science community to do the same basic process instead of telling the audience, you know, what you think they need to know, try and take some time and figure out what it is you think they're interested in hearing about and seeing how you can try and uh, kind of meet them at least halfway to weave your message into that. And, of course, a lot of scientists are just, militantly resistant to that whole idea, but that's the essence of it. And in the book I, I talk about it, 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 it gets as simple in terms of communicating to the public as what are you going to do? Are you going to tell statements or questions? Um, you can talk about your research in terms of statements and expect the audience to put it all together and something makes sense, or you can try and craft your information into something like a question that lights a fire inside the minds of people and makes them then want to hear the information from you. And a lot of scientists just don't want to be bothered with wasting their time trying to craft it into a question. And it's that sort of, I mean, I hate to call it arrogance, but that really is what it is at times. And it's the same thing that Dave's talking about is a lot of these people trying to do their politics and having the arrogance of, of going in and telling the congressman what they think they need to know as opposed to slowing down and actually listening and trying to figure out how to work it into their agenda. Absolutely. There's this whole arrogance that, well, Congress can do a bill in a year or in a matter of months. You know, what's, what's with these guys? How come they haven't done so much in 100 days and stuff? Randy Olson, tell us the name of your book by Island Press again. Uh, don't Be Such a Scientist, Talking Substance in an Age of Style. Thanks. Dave, how are we doing with uh, climate change bill or green energy? We, we are hearing uh, a bill has been, been leaked. Uh, from the, on the Senate side. So Senator Boxer and Senator Kerry have been working on, an, on a climate bill for the Senate, and it should be introduced today is what we understand. Um, the, the leaked version sounds very strong, a little stronger than the House version that passed earlier this year. So um, a big, there's a lot of work left to do. There's going to be a big fight over this, but it's really great to see that although the country has a lot of priorities, and the Congress has a lot of priorities, that this issue has not slipped away, uh, we can certainly make the case that this should be one of the very top issues that our Congress is dealing with. And, and I'm very proud to say that, that Ocean Champion uh, Senator Boxer and, and Senator Kerry are indeed pushing this forward. So everybody should 
expect to see uh, see that released today, I would expect, and then scheduled hearings, and we'll see where it goes. But I, I remain cautiously optimistic that we can and will uh, get something done this year. Well, this is kind of typical that the more the smaller Senate would be more um, aggressive on on better um, you know better attacks on on lessening you know lethal overheating and fatal freezings and toxic tides and all that uh, because they're a smaller number. Well, I'm I'm not sure. I think many of us are expecting the Senate bill to ultimately end up weaker than the House version. Oh, um, so it's nice that they're starting in a in a stronger place. Um, I I think the the Senate has greater greater challenges uh, even with 60 on the Democratic side uh, that includes a number of senators from very small states remember no matter how small a state is how few people live in it they oh, still get two senators <laughs> two votes um, that equals California which has 35 million people but only two senators so uh, I think it's going to be a tough battle in the Senate but as I say I still remain cautiously optimistic that we will do what what most people agree must be done as quickly as possible, and that has put a, a cap on, on CO2 to begin to rein in this problem. And let's remember, even if people disagree with global warming and have concerns about global warming, acidification, this big problem hitting the oceans, is a problem of CO2. It's not a problem of warming. And we, there's no debate that CO2 is increasing something I constantly remind people, if you care about the oceans, you have to reduce CO2 levels to deal with the acidification problem, independent of the warming problem. So all the ocean folks out there have a, a, another arrow in their quiver to be able to, to push back to why we need this. Very important. Very well said. Uh, Randy, I want to thank you for being on this show and, and uh Wish you all the best with your premiering of Sizzle, the movie, in New York. Uh, you said it's going to be on Friday, October 23rd, the day before 350 parts per million day. Ah, okay. <laughs> Perfect timing. Yes, we schedule it just to match with that. Thank you, Randy. And, David, thanks for the updates on, uh, on Capitol Hill. Thank you, Rob. Cool. Great. Good talking to you. Tune in next week. Thanks for listening. again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then.